0: Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to the Life, Death, and Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium. I know it seems like a strange combination, but that gives me a unique view of life and death. Death can be scary. I get that. That's why I'm doing this. I want to help people explore life, death, and what it all means. We are born and we die What we do in the middle is the space between. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Uttered Steve Jobs before passing away. This is all an elaborate hoax, stated Roger Ebert, the famous Chicago movie critic. Enough. Enough. The angels say enough. Three days left were the final words of Lisa Smart's father. Lisa is a linguist, educator, and poet. It was these words that prompted Lisa to found the Final Words Project, an ongoing study devoted to collect and interpret the mysterious communications at the end of life. It is these words that give us insight and hope about what happens when we die. I am honored to welcome Lisa to the show today to tell us about the Final Words Project your book, Words from the Threshold, and the article that just came out yesterday, January 16th, in the Atlantic, titled, What People Actually Say Before They Die. So, Lisa, can you just tell us a little bit about kind of what brought you to this work?
1: What brought me to this work uh, really was my father and his passing and um i had read raymond moody's book when i was 17 life after life and i always had a curiosity but about what existed beyond this world if there was anything um but i certainly didn't have any strong opinions it was more I was curious so when my father who was a complete skeptic very down to earth i call him a cigar chomping new yorker you know the kind really down to earth Didn't believe in a thing. If I ever spoke about angels or anything like that, he'd roll his eyes. So those last three weeks, when he became uh, suddenly very ill, he had a very serious infection as a result of being overradiated for in cancer treatment. And in those last three weeks, he started talking about angels in the room, and I was stunned because this is a man who would have rolled his eyes at me when you know about such a thing, and. Um, I am trained as a linguist, and I've always had a love for language. So as I started hearing my father talk about things, enigmatic and mysterious things like angels in the room, and I also noticed shifts in his language, I began to write everything down that I heard, because as a linguist, that's what I was trained to do when I heard language that mystified me. hmm and then when my father did pass, um, he was living in Berkeley, California, where I grew up. I went to school at UC Berkeley where I studied linguistics. I went right up the street to see what was available about research in end-of-life language because what I had witnessed in those last three weeks of his life blew me away and made me super curious. And when I looked at the databases for end-of-life language and what was available, there was almost no research in the linguistics department. And while there's tons of material on the beginning of life, language acquisition Mm -hmm. and so forth, there's almost nothing about that. And I became very curious and it was very clear to me that what I had witnessed in my father's passing had something to do with consciousness because what I saw um, were patterns in language and perceptions that went beyond anything else I had ever seen or heard in his
0: ordinary day-to-day language. So in your book, you talk a lot about kind of nonsense language, metaphors, the themes of metaphors. What did you find in your research around this?
1: Um, a lot more than I expected. I, you know, through the final words project, which I established uh, right, right. Um, a little after I went to Berkeley and realized the paucity of of research available, um, I've now gathered about 2,000 final words or utterances. And through that, I found very clear patterns. One was also written about Uh, in Final Gifts by Maggie Callanan and Patricia Kelly, who are two hospice nurses. And what they discovered, and I also saw clearly, is that metaphors emerge in very powerful ways. So in my father's case, Right about three weeks, just as he was beginning this dyeing process, he started talking about the big art show that was coming, the big art exhibition, and he was going to carry boxes to this art exhibition. And, you know, first we were, what's going on with that? That makes no sense. But I soon came to found, find out that announcing some kind of big event that's really close and dear to the interest in life of the person is very common. Or someone might announce the big dance that's coming or the big dinner that's coming. So you may hear Aunt Martha say, um, you know, get me my pearls because I'm going to the big dance. But, But Auntie, you're You're in bed. You're in the hospital. There's no dance. Oh, yes, I'm going to this big event. So that's one kind of metaphor. The other metaphor is is people start talking about a big trip or a big journey they're going to take. Mm -hmm. You start hearing about uh, one chaplain shared with me how one of her, um, one of the patients that she was working with was talking about um, needing a passport to get to this other country. And all around this this gentleman, people going, what's he talking about? Why is he talking about losing his passport? And also, Callanana and Kelly also write about these kinds of uh, stories, where people are talking metaphors. He wasn't talking about a real trip. I mean, what we think of as a real trip, right? He wasn't right. From Omaha, but it really, he started talking about some journey to some other place. And this is very common. It's happening in 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 bedrooms and hospitals and hospices all over our country.
0: Well, and I have to say, you know, personally, I had never thought about my experience with my fam- people in my family dying in this way. But my, when my grand, my papa passed away, my Nana was his caregiver, like his entire life. Her life was dedicated to taking care of him. And so we knew that she probably wouldn't, live much longer once he passed. And he passed in January, actually 10 years ago, this January, like a week from now. And she passed shortly after in May, but she went through a period where she was psychiatrically hospitalized. And when, uh, right at, I mean, she was 90 years old. Like this was not a woman who suddenly, and they attributed the She was having a psychotic break to the the depression. And now once I read your book, I was like, because she was talking about him. She was saying, Dave is here. He's coming for me. She clearly, like, these were her stages of leading to that. Uh And I said to my mom just last night, I said, mom, do you, and dad, do do you remember what Nana was saying? And they said that that's what she was saying. She was calling for him. And it just shifted how, one, how I saw that, but two, how we can really think about this with people and not psychiatrically hospitalize them at the end of their life, but treat them with the dignity and respect that they deserve and and what they're going through. You know, this wasn't a psychotic break. And- I'm a therapist, and I have worked with people with psychosis. This was probably her in those final stages of transitioning.
1: What an incredible story. And, um, yeah, and we know that visitations – from deceased loved ones is very common and you have now even on WebMD online that when they talk about one of the indicators that death is approaching is that you start having visitors quote that you know that we unseen visitors that, that the loved ones see and now we know this is a very normal and common part of end-of-life and it's also it gives a lot of people because you know dying is oftentimes scary or difficult. And when people see their deceased relatives show up in the room, you can imagine what kind of comfort that gives people. But it shows up in our transcripts so commonly, where people start talking to their spouses from who had passed on before them. What a remarkable story, Amy, about your your grand. It was your grandmother, right, your nana? Yeah, yeah, my dad's mom. And I sure hope we're moving, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. we're moving because you can imagine that if we enter into, if, if we imagine, or at least maybe even know that there is something magical going on, there's a portal door opening, or if we even write down or just be witness with an open heart and with a sacred eye, then we ourselves become uh, privy to kind of a view beyond the threshold, which is so magical and such a blessing. So when great story from yeah thank you for that
0: and what thank you for shining a light on that for me um what is the nonsense language that you talk about um i'm going to get some examples here to make it a
1: little easier there are different kinds of nonsense the one kind of nonsense might be something um like what we had just talked about oh they're just talking nonsense or they're having a psychotic break because they're seeing angels they're seeing So that's more what I call situational nonsense. Mm -hmm. Based on what the situation is, it's nonsensical. Um, And then you see things uh, with prepositions, like people start talking about, here they are lying down on the bed, right? But they'll say, I'm going up, I'm going up, I'm crossing up. And everyone's going, what the heck are you talking about? You're lying right down there on a bed. But really, people start using up and down and hearing. Let me think of some other I'm on top now, moving on top. I'm crossing up, crossing up. Hmm. I've got to get down to earth. Help me get back down. So, you know, what we know about the near-death experience is that when people first have an NDE, one of the first things that they have is they experience moving out of their body. So one of the, quote, nonsensical things we hear is that people's use of prepositions, those little words that mm-hmm. say where they are in space, um, they begin to kind of go wonky. So, um, that's one form. There's just babbling that you sometimes hear closer as people approach, and we know with something like speaking in tongues, for example, um, glossolalia, you hear nonsense syllables, and also at the end of life, and we don't really know what they mean or what that happens, but we do know that they come from often it's language from a different part of our brains, right? It's not, um, and so there. So I have many ideas about that but that's one of the things that we do see pure gibberish or we'll see um self-contradiction uh something like um uh one gentleman said give me a half of full measure of help or my father said introductory offer lisa it's an introductory offer the store is closing down and it's like there are these contradictions. So you just, mm-hmm. When you analyze it, there are several patterns of what we call non, you know, nonsense in terms of language, self-contradiction mm-hmm. or paradoxes. And yet we know when people talk about near-death experiences, they oh, also use language that we could call nonsensical. So, for example, oftentimes we've heard with people who have near-death experiences, they may say, you know what, I have never felt as alive as when I was dead.
0: And that's, that's How the, freeing is that, right? How freeing is that? <laughs> bring it on, bring it on.
1: <laughs> really, but that technically in terms of language, that's nonsense, right? Because it contradicts. So those are the kinds of things that you'll hear in the language of people at end of life that have been dismissed often because of medications or psychotic breaks or, oh, their brain is just going wonky. Well, I am proposing and I'm suggesting that maybe some of these combinations we're seeing are indications that people are going into another type of experience, another type of
0: consciousness. Right. And that's, you talk about symbolic language as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that people always ask me in my work as a medium is, how, how, when, some, when someone who's past is talking to you, do you hear them talking to you? And my response is is not usually it's not typically how you and I are talking right now. But you talk about symbolic language, and you address some of this in your book. So, can you kind of enlighten the listeners as to what? Can you answer that question for them for me?
1: (laughs) Well, there's um, many ways to answer, and I'll keep it brief. In just a few ways, one is that uh, when I interviewed psychics for the book, many people said that they dealt in symbols. So, Mm -hmm. for example, when you're working with me, you might see an apple, let's say. Now, for me, though, an apple means one thing that may not be the same for Sarah down the street. Or it could be for one psychic, whenever he or she sees an apple, that always means an illness, mm-hmm. right? So there's this language that appears in symbols. So when the people are dying, oftentimes you'll hear them referring to things like, for example, boxes. People talk a lot about these boxes or things, you know, talk about things that really aren't there. They're metaphors or symbols. And um, and so it's honoring Two things. One is that symbols in this way have many meanings. So in, in real life in conversation, I can say, Amy, here's a cup. I'm giving you this cup. Here, would you like a glass of water? And we both agree on the one meaning of cup. Mm-hmm. You know? However, with symbolic language, it's rich because it oftentimes has multiple meanings. It has the meanings of the person who has that image, but also the person who's receiving it. And so to me, and poetry is that way. You know, if you've ever read poetry, you'll see references and has many multiple meanings. So language is not just a one-on-one, this is a cup. Language is capable of, of having many meanings and symbols have that quality. So in the language of end of life, it's it's you'll see different people use different symbols and it's really important, I think, that we're all open to what those symbols are and to open our hearts and our minds to the multiple meanings. Also, it seems to me that there is some kind of telepathic communication and it seems to increase at end of life. And it will come to us in pictures or images and to really honor and respect those and also people have dreams where their loved ones appear before they die, or while they're dying, or after they die. That's mm-hmm. another expression of symbolic language. And Evan Alexander, who we know through his book Proof of Heaven, described, and this is commonly described, that the language he experienced on the other side is telepathic. So it's not linguistic. It's not <laughs> right. It's images and or feelings, mm-hmm. right. And so that's some of what I think about symbolic language. But I think we as human beings, we are language is is as much symbolic as it is analytic or, you know, driven by phonemes and sound. I think Mm -hmm. types of and we know, like in in life, synchronistically, we might get symbols in our life. Like a feather may fall right in front of us one day, and we know that represents something. So I feel like the universe, internally and externally, is very much driven by symbols, mm-hmm. it's a lot of communication.
0: Yeah, and that's that's often too. Like there are some things that mean when I was doing the, the medium work, there were some symbols that meant something to me. And there were some symbols that meant nothing to me. And I would just say what the symbol was and the person with whom I was doing the reading with would light up or, you know, say, oh my God, that's in reference to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And And for me, that meant, you know, keys to a car, for example, right? But to this person, it meant... My, yes, you know, my dad always lost his car keys, and it was a standing joke in our family. (laughs) So it's that piece, I think, too, that is not, it's not just about, um, it's about the translation of those symbols as well, which we do with words. But what you're saying is sometimes that's just telepathic and without consciousness.
1: That's true. Or and within a
0: different state of consciousness. A different, Yeah, that's yeah, right. Without
1: exactly. consciousness. Yeah. Or, but, and, and one of the things that I learned from my father's experience and from speaking to so many people now is that we're, just like we do with children, you know how children may say, I have a big rabbit standing next to me, right? That's a symbolic, and we don't go, oh, come on. Well, hopefully we don't. Right. <laughs> hopefully right. we engage with them and that whole discovery of the right. rabbit. It's really powerful and, and also just plain fun and delightful experience. And of course, when someone's dying, it's harder to have that light heart, of course. But also in the same way, as people are dying, to step into their world, their symbolic world. And, you know, rather than saying, Dad, there's not a tree in the room right now. Like, for example, one father explained to his daughter how he saw this beautiful landscape of hills and trees, and he had to decide which door he was going to enter. That And there were like these different barks of trees and you open, you know, and, and she was very much like, tell me about the trees, daddy, you know, let me step into that world with you. And I think when we do that, and we step into that symbolic, symbolic realm, whether it's children, whether it's our best friends, whether it's our dreams, and whether it's someone who's dying, there's these incredible connections that can be made on multiple levels.
0: So one topic I found particularly interesting, and your dad actually referenced it when he said three days left, was that you talk about this number three coming up Mm -hmm. in your work as people move towards death. So what did that three, what did you find that that represented?
1: Well, you know, I have several thoughts about that also. Um, I think first, there might be some kind of biological thing that, you know, maybe three days before we die, there's something that 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 somehow consciousness-wise, we know it is at that point something shifts significantly in those three days before dying. Because it's not uncommon three days before people die that they have some kind of marker to say three more days or something. It seems to be a really important day, and of course, I'm not medically trained, so that we might gain more insight about that. Um, but also, you know, three is the trinity. Mm-hmm. Also, a lot of people um, in my research would say something like, uh, all there right, they're threesome playing bridge, and they need a fourth hand, and I'm the fourth hand to make it complete. And then number four is oftentimes, Jung talked about this, considered the number of completion, right? Because four seasons, uh, four directions. Mm-hmm. So it's not uncommon to hear people talk about, well, there's three of them playing golf, and they need a fourth. And they're telling me on the fourth. Um, and you know, it's so funny, Callanan and Kelly also found this uh, that golf shows up. <laughs> uh, Surprising. Like, um, it might have just obviously been the slanting or the skewing of the sample, right? They were just, you know, in golf. But you know, people talked and they had the same thing. It was one of the accounts I remember. But yeah, you know, they have these guys are having a tournament. Or they're having a threesome of players and I'm
0: going to be the fourth. So well, that makes sense because yeah. those are things that need four. Right, exactly. Right? It's not exactly. like I'm, I'm going out for the basketball team.
1: Exactly. That's
0: exactly. five. <laughs>
1: so, exactly. So it's, it's a whole idea of completion. Yeah. And also I thought, you know, three is like half of the infinity sign. I mean, I kind of played around because the number three emerges and number eight. And, when, uh, you know, also showed up. Yeah, I know, it's fascinating. I have,
0: like, the chills all over. Yeah.
1: Wow. Wow. So that's cool for me. To, I mean, that's, I love getting that feedback from you because that, um, that tells me some, something about, about how real that is. And, you know, we're collecting. We're continuing to collect data, and I haven't really gone through it for a few months because I've been so busy. But I'll be sitting down in the next few months and really combing through it again because we have so much more data now, and I want to look at the numbers. Are really
0: fascinating. Well, and so my next question isn't necessarily related to language, um, but I remember years ago, I don't know if I saw her on a show, but Jill Bolte, do you remember? I do. Who had the stroke and she talked about her mind, not knowing that her mind was not functioning, but that she was able to sense the energy of the people in the room. And you talk about this in your book, too, with regards to, I think you alluded to, like, the person who was dying. I don't, I can't remember if it was a near-death experience and they came back. They must have because they reported that they knew that the nurse and the doctor were having an affair or there was, like, a connection or something. That was such a powerful
1: story. It comes from Madeline Lawrence's book. Um, I believe it's In Their Own World or uh, in a world of their own, I believe. And she did research on coma survivors. So there were people who were in comas, but then when it came out, they were able to report their experiences. And a very large percentage were very tuned into the energy of the room, even though it appeared that they were not there. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, she even suggests, and I know Dr. Moody does, Raymond Moody does, and now I'm, I feel pretty strongly this way too, the more compromised we are physically, it seems to, as we had talked about earlier, release that ability to have consciousness. It's the more that our bodies are intact. It's almost like it keeps our consciousness grounded on this physical plane or, or you know, something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and but when people in comas, and it's not, over, you, know, you know, there are obviously a percentage of people who don't have that experience. But I was surprised by the figures that I saw in her research. And it, it was, um, she's a nurse, so it was very well done
0: and careful research. And people are much more aware than I had ever imagined. Well, and speaks to probably one, how much we block that for ourselves, right? But we we allude to it in culture all the time. I didn't get a good feeling from that person. I didn't like that person's energy. Um, But so often our cognitive processes take over and we start to rationalize why that is or talk ourselves out of it and part of my work is in in this podcast is really wanting people to be able to get more in touch with their own intuition and it's it sounds like it's more accessible when you when your mind your brain isn't able to interfere and your consciousness is just expa- more expansive
1: Right. And I believe um, Melvin Morse, who was on our webinar at the University of Heaven last week, I believe, but anyway, a couple weeks ago, he does work with something called applied remote viewing. It's a very technical way to, to develop psychic ability. But the whole idea is that there is this big informational field and that we can all tap it. And so I just think what happens is when our bodies are compromised, it's just, it's almost like there's a a tear in the veil or something or however you want to think of it. So we have access, but, you know, he's coming, Approach. he's approaching it very scientifically and all- it's, it's, a, it's like a protocol that was used in the military about developing these abilities. And, but there, it, it, the foundational premise is that there is some kind of informational field um, that is that we can all tap into. And I believe that is, what we tap into when our consciousness is expanded and our bodies are compromised. That's what it seems like from what I know so far.
0: hmm. Oh, I, I, he's on my list of people to reach out to. So <laughs> oh, good. I better do that quick. Um, <laughs> So I feel like in sort of for me consolidating this notion of around death, it seems like there's sort of three three. There it is again, (laughs) three areas that are particularly scary when it comes to death. And it seems like it's the process of dying, what happens to us when we die, and the fear of people we love dying and the pain around that. Mm -hmm. So what what kind of hope do you feel like your book gives regarding the process of dying in particular? Because I know I'm gonna talk to Dr. Moody in a couple of weeks, and we're going to talk about near-death experiences, which sort of addresses what happens when we die. But this process of dying seems to be frightening for people. Um, and how does it give us hope?
1: You know, I, um, I have really lost A lot of my fear of dying. Now, of course, if I was on a plane getting ready to crash, I would feel afraid. But when I, my father was not only skeptical about angels, but he was really afraid of dying. And I think because he didn't have a spiritual belief system, dying was really scary. It was so powerful watching him. And then I've heard from so many other people, it's almost as if we are indeed programmed to come to peace with dying. Because you watch, there's this kind of evolutionary process that goes on and and of life, and again, I'm not an expert, I'm just going, I mean, not an expert in terms of medically, but when I look at the transcripts, you see this process of people coming to peace with what's going on, and then often they have some kind of transpersonal breakthrough. You know, some of it comes through seeing angels or loved ones in the room, but um, there is definitely agitation and fear, like, yeah, of course there is as we die. But then there is this way, and you see it in our dreams. There's been some wonderful books reading about death and dream, dying in dreams. That people really, we seem to have a place in us that's transcendent, that is there to help us make our way through the process. Not everyone does it. Some people, you know, I and mean, I mean, this is the truth, not will say help me help me
0: I'm dying. I mean it's not right. all but for a lot but there's a of resistance, right? I mean right. There is, of course. You mm-hmm. know, because it
1: feels to me it's like our physical body, animal physical body, you know, we are programmed to survive, right? We are resilient. And yet our spirits and our consciousness um, it seems knows that it's okay. You know, is ready to to ascend or however you want to map what the spirit does. But what I want to say is that from so many people I've heard this from, and it was true with my father, that it can be an incredibly sacred, powerful. Experience and there are these shared death experiences. You'll, you'll talk to Raymond about where you know light will fill the room, and many people talk about how the room of someone dying feels much like the room of someone giving birth. There's this very charged energy in the room, and it's really there's a almost a magic and a quietness about it. And I'm not trying to sugarcoat it because it's really really awful to lose someone we love. Of mm-hmm. course. But I've heard and I've read so much about how there really seems to be a natural As if we really are programmed for a transcendent experience at end of life, um, if we're supported on multiple levels. Like my father said, I want to die at home. I don't want to be in a hospital. I want to be surrounded. You know, we read him poetry and we, you know, it was very loving. And he, I remember what, he was a psychologist also. And I would walk into the room and he'd say, I'd say, how are you doing, Papa? I'd say, I'm working on myself. You know, I'm working on myself. And I really had this feeling and I see it. My father was working on coming to peace with what this incredible, powerful transition. But there was so much peace and grace in him that I would have never imagined. Um, so I feel I'm not afraid of dying now in the sense of the process, because I've heard too many people tell me about the angels in the room, or these Mm -hmm. incredible landscapes opening, or Steve Jobs, who was not a believer by any means, right? Right. (laughs) Oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Or Thomas Edison saying it's beautiful over there. You know, what, what, you know, if our brains are completely decaying basically as we die right things are shutting up how is it we're seeing such a magnificent thing so i have lost a lot of my fear of the dying process and um my dear husband who's 70 uh was really sick last week and it was really really scary because on from this side grief is real yeah. I don't care what you believe about the afterlife. I mean, I want my husband around to help me wash the dishes. Right. <laughs> you know? right. no. I don't care if there's a world beyond. And I love being alive. And even though I've lost a lot of my fear and I'm very, I feel very confident now. there's something beyond, um, you know, I want to be here and enjoy it as long as
0: I can. And so. I well, and that's you. the key, Right. Being here and enjoying it.
1: Yes. Yes. And anytime we've had these transcendent experiences, whether we have them through witnessing other people's passing or whether we have it in prayer, you know, the trick for me is to bring all that juicy, amazing transcendence just into our everyday
0: lives. And it's not as easy as, you know, it's not always easy. <laughs> no, it's work. It's work. But when you have those experiences, yeah, be it, like you said, through prayer, through meditation, through dreams, through... After death visitations, which was how mine sort of got started, um, it, it does feel like an awakening in some way and an, an, an enlightening of, wow, and and really how can I connect with that, with my soul now so I can continue to grow my soul here and transcend in some ways while I'm still here.
1: Exactly. And that's why the, uh, the final words and not being afraid of what we hear from our loved ones, not calling it psychotic, but maybe instead sacred, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it gives us even more of a touchstone to the sacred um, in our lives because the more we can connect with the sacred, the more sacred our lives become, right? So, you know, once we see the, the, the like uh, that. you know, and it's like the grace of death and dying. Once we can see that, and again, I'm not, I'm not sugarcoating it, but, but there are, there is a lot of grace in that. And people share death experiences of seeing a mist or a light, you know, emerge, emanate from their loved one as they're dying. You know, there's so many things that happen that are very compelling and and the language is one touchstone it's not to be afraid of that symbolic language not to be afraid of the nonsense but to enter in and to listen to the conversations our loved ones might be having with people who aren't
0: in their physical you know physically in the room with us. Mm-hmm. So we're going to pivot here. Tell me about the university of heaven that you started with Dr. Um, Dr. Raymond Moody because i I mean, obviously I was, you know how I felt because we talked before this about just you being so open and willing to talk to me and how grateful I was for that. But um, I, what he's doing and what you're doing with him is so fascinating to me. So can you?
1: Thank you. Um, Well, you know, Raymond, who coined the term near-death experience and really opened the door for so much of this conversation um, is... 70, I think he's 74, 75, and getting older, he has so much wisdom, and it's just uh, really hard for him to travel uh, these days, and um, his health isn't the best, and we both really wanted to bring his work forward, and also, he has blazed the trail for so many people. Matter of fact, Christine, uh, I I mean, you know, brought in some of his work, I mean, just so many people, so I was really excited as I got to see the technology has gotten so accessible for someone like me,
0: <laughs> right? You know, who's frankly 60. someone like me too.
1: <laughs> and what an great opportunity because it um, for Raymond to create sort of a legacy site where we also invite and highlight all the people who've been affected by him, including myself. <laughs> so we do live webinars. We have an amazing complimentary um, blog with just. Remarkable researchers who are writing articles. It's all, you know, all for free, obviously. The live webinars are small cost, and um, but we do offer scholarships if anyone's uh, struggling, which I understand. I've been there, um, but it's just a very exciting opportunity to capture all of Raymond's work and allow him to offer his wisdom and those of his colleagues without having to leave his living room and travel on a plane for twelve hours to <laughs> to mm-hmm. Europe. So, and I really love building a community of really um, just remarkable people. We're going to be interviewing Rachel Harris next February 5th, and she has written this book called Listening to Ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And it's a look at what the similarities and differences are in those kinds of experiences, NDEs and ayahuasca. And uh, Dr. Melvin Morris will be talking more about the science of NDEs next weekend with his live webinar. So it's really it's such an honor to be a part of, Uh, really capturing Dr. Moody's legacy. He's a sweetheart of a person and has done so much for so many people, including
0: myself. So I'm very, and those webinars are how long is each webinar? Um,
1: About an hour and 10 minutes. Okay. And uh, they're $15.
0: So, so part of what you're offering my listeners today is Uh, this is going to air on a Thursday. So, Mm -hmm any listener who is interested in you could pay for the webinar or you can you have until monday to go to itunes and review my podcast snap a picture of it send an email to the university of heaven at gmail.com with the subject in the email the space between podcast And three people will get chosen for a free webinar registration of your choice. And those webinars are ongoing. Um, You have some really fascinating people. I'm hoping to do maybe little appetizers on them on my podcast. And then if we can get the timing right, use it as like a launching pad to maybe get some more people to your University of Heaven, which I think would be great. Um, But take some time and do that. Go look at your site. Also, if people want like a little appetizer as well before buying your book, they can read the article that was out in the Atlantic. Um, And we have a page. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: Go ahead. Um, We have a resources page. So every person who we have on the webinar uh, has given a free excerpt from their book. So there's lots of free excerpts, including my own from my book. And and we also have some pre-recorded webinars um, that are coming up. So uh, some of some,
0: so that will also be available in the coming weeks and months, too. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to open up this world of language and what happens in as, as people transition. I think it's really important for us to always be thinking about this and to think about how we are treating people, as that was illuminated for me at the end of life when they're talking about these things and how we can really engage with them in a beautiful conversation.
1: Mm, Beautiful. Thank you.
0: Thank you. (laughs) All right, everybody. Have a great day and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Curious about what comes next and what it all means? You can subscribe on iTunes. Just go to podcasts and find Life. Death and the space between and hit subscribe. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Ask me any questions you might have. Let me know what else you'd love to hear about or just share your story. I can't wait to hear from you.